you would, take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. <laughs> Gotta love it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this morning's story from Acts chapter 5. <clears throat> Excuse me. It's kind of it's going to come and go. So, may the only benefit for you guys is it's not going to be a forty-five minute sermon this morning. <laughs> of course, I could slow it down and make the scratch go a long time. I don't know. I won't do that to you. <clears throat> Acts chapter five: the story of Ananias and Sapphira, and it's amazing how we've been reading over the last couple of weeks these things that started with the, with a the man who was lame, who was begging, and all the circumstances that took place. And they're all gathered around Solomon's porch, right? Remember this? They're still there, by the way. They're still there. They're gathering for a couple of days. They're, the, the word tells us that they're still gathered on the porch for what's taking place in today's story. But it's amazing how what had happened had just shaken everybody to the core. And it was exciting to see what God was doing. So I want to just read Acts chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And uh, if you can bear with me just for a little while. And then uh, <clears throat> we'll be done in a little bit here. But a man named Ananias and with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge. And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your authority? Why is it that you laid this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And he has heard these words. Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard. You'll wonder. And the young men rose up, wrapping him up. And carrying him out, they buried him. Now there was an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you were paid this much for the land. And he said, Yes, that much. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who had heard these things. You think? Uh, (coughs) I just kind of added a Kenton paraphrase in there, but um, I I think that would kind of have a startling effect on us if that would have happened in our midst. But let's look to the Lord in prayer, and I encourage you to pray along with me as I'm praying. And uh, lift my voice up to the Lord and see what he does with this. Lord Jesus, we come before you. And God, we thank you for your word and that, Lord, none of it is trivial. It's all of great, precious value to us. And Lord, even the stories in God's Word that we seem are harsh or judgmental or critical, but Lord, there are stories that tell us your heart. And Lord, there are stories that teach us that there are repercussions and, and consequences to every choice that we make. And Lord, your Word teaches us how we can glorify you and live for you. And yet, Lord, so often we choose to live for ourselves, Lord, forgive us as a church. Forgive us here at Harvest Bible Fellowship. 
Lord, for sometimes being, Lord, like this. Far too often, Lord, thinking of ourselves and trying to make ourselves look good. And Lord, you know our hearts. You know that we cannot hide anything from you. You're a great God, God. You're a God that loves us, cares for us, extends mercy and grace every day, every hour. And Lord, we are benefits of your daily kindness. And Lord, all we can do is say thank you, not only verbally, but Lord, with how we live our lives for you. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts through your word this morning. Lord, teach us what we need to know. Remind us of things that maybe we've once learned and have forgotten. But Lord, I also pray that wherever the word of God goes forth this day, Lord, that would not return void, but would accomplish your perfect will. And Lord, I know that all around the city, all around the state, there are other like-minded churches, Lord, that are beginning their services and beginning to open the word. And I pray, God, as we worship through the word, Lord, that you would have your intended purposes accomplished. Lord, I do pray that souls would be saved today throughout our state, that decisions would be made, Lord, that would draw us closer to you, Lord, and that you would actually begin a revival in our hearts and in our state and in our country, Lord. So, Lord, we know that you are the only answer to all the struggles and problems that we see in life and our culture around us, Lord. So, God, we lift ourselves up to you. We ask, God, that you would just work in and through us. May your Holy Spirit be present today. As we look at your word, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, from the earliest churches on record, you can see that there are no perfect people. There's no perfect churches. But even in the midst of God doing some great things, you notice what was taking place. Um, I love it. As we looked at last week, Acts chapter 4, verse 32, said that they had one heart, one soul, and really one objective. And I said, wouldn't it be awesome if we were that church where we could honestly say that there's nobody upset with anyone else, everybody's in unity and in harmony with one another, and there's just one heart, one soul, one mind, one objective, that we're working together to accomplish whatever it is that God has for us to accomplish. In verse 33, it says there was great power and great grace. So God's Holy Spirit was working in and through the church, and it says there was great grace everywhere within. In verse 34, it says not a needy person was amongst them. I mean, can you imagine that? I mean, that's just so far out of our realization. That you could walk into a church and see because everybody was of one heart, one mind, one soul, one objective. And everybody was just working together and there was love and kindness towards one another. To just literally see that no one had a need. I mean, we see kind of glimpses of it or maybe some small pockets of that within some communities. Um, I know that some churches specifically try to stay small so that they can help their own a little bit more, but you know, I don't know how that necessarily is biblical about keeping it small on purpose, but the idea that as we come in together, as we're in each other's company, as we pray for one another, we encourage one another, we lift, up each other, lift one another up, we find out that so-and-so has a need, and we just dig deep, and we just help meet the need, no matter what it is. And sometimes it's not, as I said earlier, not just financial. Hey, you got a skill, and maybe, uh, I know in years past, we've had single ladies that maybe they didn't have money to take their vehicle in, and I would call one of the guys and Say, she'll buy the parts, can you install them? Yes, no problem. So sometimes it's using our skills and our abilities and just being there for one another when there's a need. But can you imagine being that church that says there was not a needy person amongst them? Man, that is powerful to think about. It says in Acts chapter 4, verse 35, you see a picture of sacrifice. Uh, Verse 34, it says there was not a needy person among them for all who were owners of lands or houses 
would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. I mean, they were willing to be sacrificial. That's kind of a foreign because we kind of base our giving and our, if I could say our kindness to some extent, based on what's going on around us. If the gas prices are going up, we're not so, we're not so frequent to give money away, right? Let's just be honest. You know, if, if, if inflation is really hitting us hard, we're kind of holding on to our dollars and not going here, not going there. We kind of base our decisions on what's going on in our culture, in our world. But it says they were willing to be sacrificial. They were willing to sell things. We live in a world where it's all about getting things, and they're willing to let them go. Um, in verse 36, specifically, Barnabas shows up <coughs> with funds from a land that he sold and laid those funds at the apostles' feet. Um, in other parts of Scripture, it talks about Barnabas, how he was a person of encouragement. It said his, his name literally meant, means son of encouragement. He was a man who I think, his, if we could say his spiritual gift was giving. And he was a man who said, hey, someone has a need, I'm willing to help with it. No big deal. So he was willing to be sacrificial and be an encourager. You know, talk about God doing some great things. And then we come into chapter 1. So verse 37 says, who owned a field, sold it, brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. You know, this is where the story kind of takes a weird turn for me. Anyone else ever think this is kind of a weird story that God just kind of puts in there? Well, it's not by accident. It's not a mistake that he puts it in there. But it kind of takes a weird turn for me. And um, at least to me, if it were possible, there would be a few more questions I'd like to ask. A few more details of the story that are not given that I would like to really know about. You know, like, were Ananias and Sapphira a little jealous of some of the attention that Barnabas got? I mean, here's a guy who sells his land and brings it to the apostles' feet. And it's recognized in the Bible that he did such. I mean, was there some jealousy going on? I mean, I, I don't know. But it makes you kind of wonder, right? I mean, well, he got some notoriety for selling his land. Maybe, maybe I don't. Hey, what do you think, Sapphira? I think we had to sell our land and just let everyone know what we did? I, I don't know. But it kind of begs the question. It kind of makes you wonder, doesn't it? Second one, did anyone ask them to sell their land? I don't know that anyone necessarily told them to do it. Uh, God, God's Word doesn't tell us. And if so, was there any indication that they had to give all the proceeds to the apostles? I mean, it was theirs. They could have given what they wanted. They could have kept what they wanted. But I think because of the story, there might be some presupposition that there was some indication that maybe they, hey, I tell you what. We're going to sell our land and we're going to give it to you. Maybe, I don't know, but I think God was kind of speaking through the Holy Spirit here. <coughs> and obviously, what made you think you could outright lie and no one would find out about it? I guess some things never change. We live in a world where people want to lie all the time and they think they're going to get away with it. News alert, you're not going to get away with it. Uh, it says, God's Word says, be sure your sins will sometimes, once in a while, most of the time. Your sins will always find you out. And so if you think you're going to hide something from God, eh, big mistake. So there's a definite picture of hypocrisy here <clears throat> in this story. Now, over the years, I've, I've shared with you the definition or the example of what hypocrisy is. Um, according to Scripture and in real life, hypocrisy is really the art of acting, Right? So hypocrisy means that I am wearing a costume. I'm wearing a mask. And uh, think of it as someone who's in a movie, they're in a play, they're in a, you know, some type of production where they're pretending to be somebody that they're really not. But by putting on the mask, 
or by wearing the costume or by being in this production, they're pretending to be somebody they are not. They're trying to convince you that something that is not real is real. We know that what happens on stage, we know that what happens in the movies, what we see on the sitcoms and the reality TV shows is not reality, is it? I mean, the reality is uh, not everybody is multimillionaires. The reality is not everybody has the perfect marriage. The reality is not everybody drives, you know, fancy sport cars or Mercedes and Audis. You know, but TV wants to give you this impression that everything is just great most of the time. You know, watch all these sitcoms and the realities and everything is just great, hunky-dory, perfect. That's not reality. But they're doing their best by acting out their part to try to convince you to believe something that is not true. And so that's really the phrase that we're seeing in this word. Um, Hypocrisy is nothing more than deception. It's deliberate. It entails trying to make someone believe something that is true. Trying to make someone believe that we're more spiritual than they are. Is that not hypocrisy? Is that not purposeful deception? Uh, Trying to make someone believe that you are wealthier than they are. Is that not deliberate deception? Uh, Because of our pride, because of our selfishness, because of our desire to be appreciated and affirmed and, and accepted. Trying to make someone believe that they know more than you. Anybody ever been around that person? They always one up you, always a bigger story, always know better, always know more. It's deception, and its intent is to deliberately deceive. And so we see that here in our text. It says, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan, I'm sorry, verse 2, and kept back some of the price for himself with his wife's full knowledge, and bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. So it was the impression that I am giving everything, when in reality, he held back. And it wasn't just him, it was he and his wife in agreement with each other. So it has been said that if Satan can't defeat the church by persecution on the outside, he'll cause deceit and corruption to evade on the inside. And I believe that that is what we're seeing a picture of here in this story. And I think it happens in churches all across America. You know, it's not always the attacks from the outside. A lot of times it's the attacks from the inside. It's people being deceitful. People saying things. It's gossip. It's, uh, you know, trying to get a one-up on someone else in the body of Christ. But, you know, it's really the story here. A story of deception and hypocrisy that was actually intent. And I think it's not that far off from what we see in some churches today. But I want you to notice a couple things. First of all, notice verse 3. Ananias, why? He says, but Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? Their sin was not that they didn't give all the proceeds from the sale of their land to the apostles. Rather, their sin was that they pretended to give everything. Now, I want you to think of that very phrase that I just said. It wasn't that they didn't give everything. It's that they pretended to give everything. Let me ask you a question. I want you to think about your own walk with God right now. Where you're at in your walk with Jesus right now. When you come to the church, are you pretending to give everything when you know in your heart that you're not? I think sometimes if we're, if we're honest with ourselves, we're guilty. 
We want to give the impression that, oh, we're all in. We come to church, hey, how's it going? Oh, great, brother. How's your walk? Oh, it's great, brother. We're here in church. We're in Bible study. We're doing great. Right. But we want to give the impression that everything's just great. Because that's what we want people to think. I mean, does anyone want to know my real struggles? I mean, you know, actually, you actually know a lot of my struggles because you've known me long enough. But is that something we like to share with people? When you got a struggle, do you like to share that? How many of you just like, yeah, I like to tell everybody. No. What we want to do is hide it. You know, if you're, if, you're, if you're secretly going home looking at pornography, you don't want anyone to know about that. If you and your wife are having knockdown down guts every night, you don't want anyone else to know about that. If your kids are involved in sin, you don't want anybody to know about that. We try to hide everything, and we want to pretend as we come into the house of God that everything is just really, really good. We're giving everything to God. And really, no, it doesn't have to do with the land that we sold and the money that we laid at the apostles' feet. But the principle is the same. We're trying to persuade those around me of something that is real that is actually not real. And we're guilty. So their sin was not that they didn't give all the proceeds. I don't know that they had to. I mean, they could, I think, honestly, went to... Hey, you know, we sold this land for $100,000. We decided to get 75000 of it. We're going to keep twenty-five dollars for, for some things that we have planned. Well, great, wonderful. But they wanted to give the impression. I think the, the Scripture presupposes they wanted to give the assumption that they were giving everything when they were only giving a portion of it. So their sin was that they pretended. And they not only lied to the church, but they lied to the Holy Spirit. Um... You know, there's a lot of things that the church woman may never find out, and you're saying, thank God. You know, there's a lot of things we may never know about in this body. But there is nothing that God doesn't know about. Nothing. He knows everything. And the interesting phrase in this text is, and kept back. Which literally, this is amazing to me as I studied this this week. Uh, Let me go back to it. Uh... Verse 8, and Peter responded to her, tell me whether you were paid this much for the land. And she said, yes, that much. And then Peter said to her, why is it that you have agreed together? I mean, they were literally in agreement to hold back the idea of giving everything when they really haven't given everything. Verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back? That phrase, to keep back, literally has the idea of pilfering or embezzlement. I'm like, wow. When I read that this week, I'm like, wow. They were literally embezzling because, once again, the Scripture presupposes that there was an idea that there was an agreement they were going to give a certain amount. But then they kept back. So here's the pot. We're going to pilfer a little bit for ourselves. We're actually embezzling it a little bit for ourselves. And I remember thinking as I was reading this, those are some serious allegations. I don't know about you, but I don't ever want to be in my life to be accused of embezzlement or pilfering from the church's offering. Uh, To me, those are really, really harsh allegations. But that's literally what that phrase means, to keep back. It literally means the act of embezzlement. 
in Titus chapter 2, verse 10, he says this. Not pilfering, but demonstrating all good faith so that they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in everything. He says not pilfering, not holding back, not embezzling what has been promised to God. Um, it's the same phrase actually used in, J- in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, referring to Achan who had taken something that had been set aside or devoted to God previously. He had pilfered. He had embezzled what was not his. He had stolen. Um, Johnny, Johnny Hunt said of this verse, the couple wanted a claim without sacrifice. So as we talk about the idea, I wonder, I wonder at the beginning, it's like, oh man, Barnabas. Everyone applauded Barnabas for what he had done. You know, Sapphira, what if we did that? I mean, everyone would look at us differently if we just, you know, pretend to give everything. That's nothing more than pride. Wanting someone to think that we're more committed, more devoted, more spiritual, more religious than we really are. So they wanted the, a claim without the sacrifice and comfort without commitment. What appeared to be a public generosity was actually a family conspiracy. But God was looking. Isn't that amazing? So notice the three questions he asked in verse 4. He says, While it remained unsold... Did it not remain your own? There's the first one. And after it was, there's the second one, was sold, was it not under your authority? And then third question, why is it that you laid, it, laid in your, this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Did. And these are the questions I think God's Word doesn't always give us all the answers to, but I think we can presuppose the answers. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? Was it not your land? I mean, did you not have the authority to do with it whatever you wanted? I mean, it's your choice. It's yours. Could he not do whatever he wanted with it? He could have. But I think the story presupposes that there was a commitment made that he did not honor. He did not fulfill. Was it not under your authority? Second question. Could you not do whatever you wanted with it? Was it not yours? Can you imagine Peter looking at Ananias and saying, and Ananias just looking back and like, oh, shoot. I think somebody knows something that we did not say. Yeah, the Holy Spirit was at work. And then the third question, why? He said, you haven't lied to me. You've lied to God. You lied to the Holy Spirit. So notice the result of their sin in verse 5. I think there's two results. It says, And they heard these words, and Ananias fell down and breathed his last. So the first consequence of their lying to the Holy Spirit was that, done, over. He just died. And let me just tell you, I'm so thankful God does not do that in my lifetime. I'm just saying. Just, just in case there's any doubt, you can talk to my family about this, but I'm not perfect. I am a sinner saved by grace. I have sinned. I do my best to be as holy and righteous as I can be. But I'm just telling you, if I were in this day and age and God acted the same way, I'd be out of here. Like many of you. But I'm thankful for God's grace and His mercy and His long-suffering. Because really in His long-suffering, that's where He is patient with us to help us realize when we've done something wrong and not immediately judge us. I'm thankful that God is a a long-suffering God. But can you imagine, why did you do this? 
I'm just telling you, every church would need a morgue in its basement. Just saying. And then the second thing is like a duh. Great fear came upon all who heard, you think. Did you just see what happened? Oh yeah, I'm not, I'm just going, hey, where's the altar? I'm going to get things right right now. I mean, immediately we're going to all of a sudden have a confessional going on. Priest is getting his beads warmed up. I don't know. But all of a sudden there's great fear. Here's a verse in Luke uh, chapter 12. I want to read for you. Luke chapter 12, verse 5 says this. Put one more page. It says, But I will show you whom to fear. Fear the one who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. I tell you, fear him. I'm telling you, as soon as Ananias died, they realized who God was. Great fear came upon all of them. He says, that's the one we are to fear. The one that has the ability to throw. Not only other scripture tells us, not only the one that has to kill, but the one that has the power to take your life back up. He's the one that we're to fear. So let me just close with this. What are the lessons that we learn from this? Well, I think there's at least two strong lessons. Is in the first one is this. That God sometimes judges severely. Sometimes he doesn't. But sometimes he does. And I don't know about you, but I do believe in, there are scriptural examples of this, where people can basically stand before God and affront God for so long, and God will finally take their life. I believe that God has done that. Um, I'm not saying every death is a result of that. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that there are people that I've known personally who made a profession of faith in Jesus Christ, had followed him, and then all of a sudden became very rebellious, and they're gone. See, does God do that all the time? I don't know. But I ain't going to test the theory. I just want to say, God, I just want to be walking in obedience. I want to walk in holiness. I want to walk in righteousness. And if there is sin in my life, reveal it so that we can make it right. But I don't want to lie about it and say it's not there when it is. So I think sometimes we learn that God judges severely as he did in that days of Ananias and Sapphira. And number two, I think God uses stories as examples for us to learn from. I think there's a lot for us to learn from Ananias and Sapphira, but the key one is not to be deceitful. Not to have deception in our life. Not to basically have the idea that I'm going to make everyone believe that something is real when it's not or something is true that is not in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction, upon whom the ends of the ages have arrived. Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed that he does not fall. I think the guy's very clear is that you can't hide from God can't hide your motives from God. can't hide your intent from God. You might be able to lie to everyone else in this entire building. You might be able to deceive everyone else that's sitting around you. But be not deceived, God is not mocked. He knows. And in Psalm chapter 139, I love this. The whole passage is good. But verse 23 and 24 says this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. 
Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me into the way of everlasting. What's he saying here? The psalmist saying, Lord, if there is sin in my life, maybe I haven't realized it. Maybe I haven't really thought about it. Maybe I just really haven't, you know, something happened a long time ago and I just kind of dismissed it as, oh, it's in the past. The psalmist is saying, Lord, reveal that to me so that I can make it right. In just a few moments, we're going to be coming into communion and observing the Lord's table. It's an opportunity where he says, let a man search himself and judge himself and examine himself. Yes, it is a time of celebration. It's a time to say, God, thank you for dying on the cross or for sending your son to die on the cross. Thank you for shedding your blood. Thank you for your generosity and your love and your kindness to me. And in return, we say, Lord, is there any sin in my life for which you shed your blood that I have not dealt with? So when the the Lord's table is taken, it's an opportunity to reflect inside and say, Lord, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. He's saying, reveal it to me so that I can get back on the right path. these are the stories that God uses sometimes to remind us that we don't have to walk in here and be deceitful. For a family, right? Anybody got a perfect family? I know some of you might think it. You're not going to say it, but you might think it. But I'm just telling you there's no perfect families. Your first kid, the first time he screamed, he didn't get what he wanted, just revealed that to you. We're imperfect people. And we're an imperfect church. We're an imperfect people that make up this imperfect church. Nobody expects you to be perfect. I don't expect you to come in here and say, oh, you got it all together. you got no flaws. God doesn't expect you to come in here and say, I don't have any flaws. But I think that the one thing that we can do is to walk in here and say, Lord, I want to do what's right. I don't want to be deceitful. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want to be something I'm not. God, help me to be what I need to be before you. I think that if Ananias and Sapphira would have just been honest about it, God would have extended his grace. I believe that. But I believe, according to the story, that there is a presupposition here that they had committed to give everything, and yet they held back. It wasn't the sin of holding back. It was the sin of lying to make them think that they had given everything. And I think that's where we are guilty as a church sometimes. We want people to think we've got it all together. But we don't. It just reminds us how much we need God. We need Jesus to work in our lives, to fill our, the Holy Spirit to fill us every day, to help us be what we need to be. Amen? That's where it's at. I challenge you as we go to the Lord in prayer in just a moment that you would practice Psalm 139, 23, and 24. Earlier in the chapter, um, we can see it says, verse 1, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down. You know when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar off. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Just get the idea that there is nothing God does not know about you already. Nothing. He says he even scrutinizes the path that you're on. Even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Yahweh, you know it all. 
You have enclosed me behind and before. You have put your hand upon me. Over and over. He just, verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? Nowhere, just in case you're wondering. Where can I go flee from your presence? Nowhere. If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed and show, behold, you're there. If I lift up the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remote parts of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me. You can't escape the presence of God. So unless you think that any bit of deception in your life will get past him, eh, not going to happen. So we might as well just practice Psalm 139, 23, and 24 and say, Lord, reveal it so that I can get on the path that you have for me. So I challenge you as we close in prayer and as Mike comes to lead us in communion, that you would just take a minute to examine yourself, to have God search your heart, to make sure you're in a right relationship with him, that there's no deception, that you're clear and open before him. Lord, as we come before you, we thank you for how you work in our hearts and our lives. Lord, we thank you for being a God that is patient, that is kind, that is long-suffering, that is a God that truly gives us time to think about our actions. And you are so kind to us. Yes, you are a righteous judge. You're a just judge. But also you're so patient with us. And I pray, God, that you would speak to our hearts even now. And I pray, God, that you'd help us not to be deceptive before you because, Lord, we can hide nothing from you. Thank you for this story, Lord, even though it sounds so harsh. It's a story for us to learn from. And the sin of hypocrisy had great consequence. But Lord, we thank you for your grace and your mercy, but help us to deal with sin. Heads are bowed, eyes are closed. Just ask for a moment as God's people are praying. Maybe this morning you say, Pastor, there's some deception in my life. No one else may know about it, but I know that God knows about it. I've come to realize that there's nothing I can hide from God. He's convicted me of some things. He's challenged me on some things. Would you pray for me? Anyone like that this morning? Yes, yes, yes. All over, yes. Can I just challenge those of you who raised your hand, your heart towards the Lord, to just take a moment and say, God, forgive me. Because in 1 John 1, he says, if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. God is such a gracious God. He loves you so much. He loves you so much more than you can imagine. Just take a moment and pray. Ask God to work in your heart. Lord Jesus, thank you for how your Holy Spirit works. Lord, thank you for bringing conviction where it's needed. And I ask God for each one who raised their hand, their heart towards you this morning, Lord, that you truly be real to them, Lord. May they sense your presence. I ask your Father, Lord, that they would, Lord, this week, make an effort, Lord, to, to please you in all their doings, Lord, that they would truly have a desire to know you in all their daily actions and reactions, Lord, that there may be a a picture of Jesus in all that they say and do. And I ask, dear Father, Lord, that you would, Lord, work in our midst as only you can. 
And we'll thank you for it. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.